summer 1995, Burbank, California. Disney animation chief Peter Schneider glares at the artist standing in front of him. The guy's just walked into his office and handed in his resignation. You're going to DreamWorks? The artist looks nervous. Uh, yeah, they offered me four times the money. Schneider's former boss, Jeffrey Katzenberg, is building a rival animation house at his new movie studio, DreamWorks, and he's doing it by poaching Disney's talent. This artist is just the latest of dozens of defectors. Schneider's face contorts with rage. You are totally without honor. Where's your loyalty? I'll stay if you match DreamWorks' offer. But they both know Disney won't. It's got shareholders to answer to. But DreamWorks is only beholden to Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, the multi-billionaire who's funding its bid to shake up Hollywood. Allen doesn't care about the money. He's a computer geek seduced by invitations to hang with the glitterati. Schneider points at the door. Out. Get out. Schneider slumps in his chair as the artist flees. He knows this can't continue. Disney must increase salaries if it wants to keep its talent. But that will send the cost of making animated features sky high. Schneider picks up his phone and calls Disney's CEO Michael Eisner. Michael, another one's just quit. Schneider holds the receiver away from his ear as Eisner rants. For years, Disney's had a stranglehold on feature animation. No studio dared challenge it. But now, Eisner's former underling Katzenberg is laying siege to Disney's castle. But Eisner's not afraid. No. If Katzenberg wants a war, he's more than willing to oblige by strangling DreamWorks at birth. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Jeffrey Katzenberg led Disney Animation into a new golden age. Pixar saved Toy Story from cancellation with a last-minute overhaul, and Disney boss Michael Eisner fired Katzenberg for his hubris. Now, Katzenberg wants revenge. He's using his new studio, DreamWorks, to assemble an animation army to storm the Magic Kingdom. But he's not the only one plotting against the House of Mouse. This is Episode 2, Battle of the Bugs. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know.
Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amic slash you know. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free for 30 days. August 1995, Point Richmond, a few miles north of Berkeley, California. Across the railroad tracks from the Chevron oil refinery in a dull office building, Pixar's animators are racing to finish Toy Story. Pixar's first movie is just three months away from release. But in the conference room, Pixar owner Steve Jobs is looking to the future. Jobs takes a black marker pen and writes the letters I-P-O on the whiteboard. Pixar technology guru Ed Catmull and creative chief John Lasseter look startled. They think Jobs must be joking, but he's not. We need to take Pixar public. Catmull thinks that's crazy. Toy Story will be the first computer-animated movie. No one knows how audiences will react. Steve, we should wait till we've done two movies. If we have a track record, we'll raise more money. Jobs shakes his head. No. Now's the time. Let's assume Toy Story is a huge success, which it will be. When that happens, Michael Eisner will realize he's helped Pixar become a rival to Disney Animation so he'll want to renegotiate our contract to keep us under the Disney umbrella and stop us from going to another studio. Lassiter interjects. How can you be sure? It's what I would do. When the renegotiation happens, we want half the profits from our movies. Our existing share is too low for Pixar to be viable. Jobs begins pacing the room. But Disney will only accept that if we co-finance our movies. Since each of our movies will eventually cost more than $100 million, banks and private investors are not an option. They won't put up that kind of money. Therefore, we go public. It's the only way to raise the money we need to get what we want from Disney. Catmull nods. He gets the logic. But Lassiter's wary. Well, we'd have to answer to Wall Street. We'd have pension funds telling us what to do creatively. If that happens, I'm gone. Jobs stops pacing. I will never ask that of you, John. Nothing changes. I will still be the majority stockholder. I'm not surrendering control. Lassiter believes him. When Jobs ceded control of Apple, he got fired. Jobs won't risk that again. Catmull poses a question. So what's our pitch to investors? The Toy Story will be a blockbuster? And no. We're building a company, not a movie. They get to buy into a new kind of entertainment company, and that's why the IPO will happen the week after Toy Story opens. Catmull gulps. He knows that's a dangerous strategy. If Toy Story doesn't deliver big on its opening weekend, Pixar's IPO will tank. But first, Pixar has to finish Toy Story. Toy Story. 
October 1995, Los Angeles. In his office on the Universal lot, DreamWorks co-founder Jeffrey Katzenberg opens another can of Diet Coke. As he raises it to his lips, he sees a familiar figure in a Hawaiian shirt standing at its door. John Lasseter, Pixar's creative chief. Katzenberg springs to his feet. John, what are you doing here? Lasseter moves in, arms outstretched, and embraces Katzenberg. I'm here doing post-production on Toy Story, so I came to say hi. How are you? Lassiter releases Katzenberg from his bear hug. Katzenberg repositions his glasses. I'm doing great, John, but I'd be happier if Michael Eisner wasn't screwing me out of my 2%. Lassiter's smile droops. The feud between Katzenberg and Disney's CEO is intensifying. Katzenberg's owed 2% of profits from every Disney movie he worked on, a sum worth more than $100 million, but Eisner refuses to pay it. Katzenberg senses Lassiter's unease. Sorry, John, it's just that kicking me out of Disney wasn't enough for Michael. He wants to hurt me, to kill DreamWorks. But you wait. Our first animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, will astound you. You know, the moment Steven Spielberg said we should do the story of Moses, I just thought, yes, I'm going to make it the best hand-drawn animation ever made. Anyway, what about you? What's, what's next for Pixar? Lassiter's face brightens. Oh, we're doing a twist on the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, where the grasshoppers are like a motorcycle gang who terrorize the ants into giving them food. So the ants seek help from bigger bugs, but hire a cowardly circus troupe by accident. Katzenberg raises his eyebrows. An ant movie? <laughs> yeah, bold, right? Katzenberg leans forward. Yeah. When's it coming out? Oh, it's a ways off still. But you've got a release window, right? Lassiter's surprised at Katzenberg's interest, but sees no harm in being open. Katzenberg's an ally. If it wasn't for him, Toy Story never would have happened. Well, Disney's thinking Thanksgiving 98. Katzenberg stays poker-faced, but inside, he's raging. November 1998. That's when the Prince of Egypt is slated for release. He feels this can't be coincidence. Eisner must be planning to use Pixar's Ant movie to bury DreamWorks' first animated feature at the box office. Lassiter checks his watch. Ah, I should run. Toy Story won't finish itself. But great to see you. Yeah, John, it was. Talk soon. After Lassiter leaves, Katzenberg opens his desk drawer, the one that's full of scripts. He pulls out a script that's been in his maybe pile for months and places it on his desk. The script's title is Ants, with a Z, and its path into production just got accelerated. A few days later, Toy Story is finished, and Disney's marketing machine kicks into overdrive. Disney World holds daily Toy Story parades. The Disney Channel airs TV specials. Burger King starts serving Toy Story meals, and Woody and Buzz appear on Sweet Tart's candy boxes. When Toy Story opens on November 22, 1995, the buzz is at fever pitch. Audiences rush the theaters, but it's not the high-tech animation that's attracting them. It's the story. Pixar's movie delights kids, but also entertains parents who've long had to endure rather than enjoy children's animation. Toy Story grosses $28 million in three days. 
It'll eventually make more than $360 million at the box office worldwide, making it the third highest-grossing animated movie of all time, after Disney's The Lion King and Aladdin. A week later, Pixar goes public and raises $140 million. It's the biggest IPO of the year and makes Jobs a billionaire. A decade after being fired from Apple, Jobs has proved he's no one-hit wonder. Pixar's the leader in the new frontier of computer animation. But now that it's shown that computer-generated movies can make millions, DreamWorks wants in, too. Early December 1995, DreamWorks offices, Los Angeles. In a meeting room, Carl Rosendahl hopes his 15-year quest for a movie deal will soon be over. He's the blonde-haired co-founder of PDI. Like Pixar, his Silicon Valley company is a computer graphics pioneer. Over the years, its computer wizardry has made the Pillsbury Doughboy dance and helped Batman perform physically impossible stunts in Batman Forever. Now, with Toy Story making millions, PDI wants to make its own movie. In the past week, Rosendahl's pitched every established studio in Hollywood. Now, he's hoping to get Tinseltown's youngest studio, DreamWorks, interested too. Our other idea is gargoyles. It's uh, about gargoyles coming to life. DreamWorks producer Sandra Rabins looks nonplussed. She's a Katzenberg acolyte who followed him from Disney to DreamWorks, and he wants her to assess whether PDI could be DreamWorks' way into computer animation. How much will these movies cost to make? About uh, $20 million. Rabins narrows her eyes. Nope. They'll cost a lot more than that. Rosendahl smiles. Well, Pixar just went public, and I read the filings. Toy Story cost them $20 million, so I'm in the right ballpark. Rabins glares at Rosendahl. He clearly hasn't done his homework. At Disney, I was the producer of Toy Story, and I was responsible for the budget. Uh, you were? Oh, I uh, didn't know. So, I know that movie costs far more than $20 million. Huh. Um, so, I'm in Egypt for the rest of the year doing Prince of Egypt work, so we'll get back to you in the new year. Rosendahl doesn't want to wait. Warner Brothers is pushing for a deal with PDI before the new year. But if DreamWorks bites, PDI could play the two studios off against each other to get a better deal. Well, uh, we are talking to other studios, so if you're interested, it'll be great if you could let us know before New Year's. (laughs) Yeah, nice try, Carl. But like I said, after the new year. Rosendahl leaves convinced he's blown it with DreamWorks. At least Warner's still keen. But in the weeks that follow, Warner presents PDI with a deal it doesn't want to sign. Rosendahl feels trapped. But then DreamWorks calls. It wants to work with PDI. DreamWorks offers PDI a choice of two movies to create. The first is Shrek. It's based on a six-page children's book about an ogre that marries an ugly princess with help from a donkey. The other option is Ants, a movie about a nonconformist ant living in a conformist colony. PDI chooses Ants. Computers still struggle with lifelike skin and fur. They're much better at animating flat surfaces like plastic toys 
or the exoskeletons of insects. In February 1996, DreamWorks buys 40% of PDI and puts it to work on ants. The official release date is spring 1999. But Katzenberg offers PDI big incentives if he can get the movie done before Pixar's rival Ant Movie. But while DreamWorks prepares to strike, Disney and Pixar are clashing over whether their alliance will survive. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business. It's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. See, State Farm agents are small business owners, too. They know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. March 1996, Disney headquarters, Burbank, California. In a private dining room, Disney CEO Michael Eisner nearly chokes on his lunch. He can't believe the nerve of Pixar chairman Steve Jobs. 50%? You want half the profits? Uh, yes, that's the price if you want our next five movies. That and equal billing to Disney in promotions. Uh, Steve, I'm open to increasing Pixar's share of profits but we're not going to pay your bills and give you half the money on top. Nor should you. Pixar will pay half the production costs. Our movies will be Pixar-Disney co-productions. Steve, the way this works is Pixar makes movies for Disney. That makes them Disney movies. Jobs stares into Eisner's eyes. If you reject our terms, we will go to another studio, and Disney will still own the rights to Toy Story and Pixar's next two features. With or without you, we'll keep making Toy Story movies. But behind the bravado, Eisner's warming to Jobs' proposal. Jobs' plan assumes Pixar will keep making hits. But Eisner knows movies are a hit-and-miss business. Eventually, Pixar will create a flop. But if Pixar's sharing the cost, Disney will lose a lot less when that dud happens. Eisner calculates that under Jobs' proposal, Disney can only lose money if a Pixar movie makes less than $70 million at the box office. And no Disney movies performed that badly since 1988. But there's no way Eisner's going to give Jobs what he wants today. He's only going to roll over after making Jobs fight tooth and nail for it. But while they haggle, DreamWorks closes in. Spring 1996, Los Angeles. In his office, DreamWorks co-founder Jeffrey Katzenberg ends his latest phone call and buzzes his secretary on the intercom. Who's next? Pixar's John Lasseter's on the line. Okay, put him through. 
John, how are you? Are you stealing my idea? Katzenberg is taken aback. Lassiter's usually a placid guy. Uh, John, I don't know what you're talking about. I told you about our ant movie, and now I hear you're making one too. Where'd you hear that rumor? Lassiter heard it from Carl Rosendahl, the co-founder of PDI, the animation studio making ants for DreamWorks. Pixar and PDI are tight. In the 80s, they used to co-host parties at computer graphics conferences. But Lassiter's not about to reveal his source. Well, is it true? Yeah, it is. How could you? We're not stealing your idea, John. I had the script for Ants long before you told me about your movie. I don't believe you. Well, I admit I did speed up production after we spoke, but look, this isn't personal. You have to understand, Disney is releasing your movie on the same day as The Prince of Egypt. It's using your movie to destroy my movie. It's appalling behavior, but I can't let that slide. I don't want to hurt your movie, John. I just want Disney to change the release date. You get that, don't you, John? There's a moment of silence. Then, Lassiter replies. F*** you, Jeffrey. F*** you. Katzenberg blinks in shock. He's never heard Lassiter swear before. But there's no going back now. The battle lines are drawn. A box office showdown beckons. But while the two rivals race to make their bug movies, Pixar is bulking up. In February 1997, Pixar and Disney revise their deal. Pixar will now make another five original movies for Disney, starting with A Bug's Life. Pixar and Disney will share the profits and production costs. Each movie will be promoted as a Disney-Pixar production, but Disney will own the rights. Disney also convinces Pixar to make a straight-to-video sequel to Toy Story. But by 1998, Pixar's having second thoughts. It worries that a made-for-video movie will hurt its brand. So, it persuades Disney to upgrade Toy Story 2 to a full theatrical release. But just weeks later, disaster strikes. February 1998, Pixar offices, Point Richmond. Toy Story 2 Associate Technical Director Larry Cutler squints at his computer. Huh? That's weird. His colleague Oren Jacob turns to look. What is? I just refreshed the Woody file folder and there's like only 40 files. There should be hundreds here. Uh, maybe refresh the directory again? Cutler does and the number of files shrinks from 40 to four. He refreshes again, and a message appears. Directory invalid. Cutler and Jacob look at each other. Cutler quickly checks another folder, the one holding the data for Rex, Ham, and Mr. Potato Head. The files appear. Then, he refreshes the directory, and Rex disappears. Then, Mr. Potato Head. Jacob's eyes widen. He's just realized what's happening. Hundreds of Pixar employees work on these files, and to make life easy, there's few restrictions on what they can do. They can even delete entire folders. But if someone uses a delete command in the wrong place, they could wipe everything. Jacob grabs his phone and calls the server room. Terror pulses through his body as he waits for an answer. 
With every passing second, Toy Story 2 is being erased. Two years of work is about to be lost. The system's administrator answers the phone. Yeah? Pull the plug on Toy Story 2's master machine. Huh? What, what do you... Now! Pull the plug! Pull it! Uh, but, but, but why? Oh, please, God, just pull it now! The anguish in Jacob's voice spurs the system's administrator into action. But shutting off a server isn't as simple as flicking a switch. Jacobs hangs on the line for what feels like an eternity. Finally, the guy returns to the phone. It's done. Jacob and the rest of Pixar's tech team spend the next few hours assessing the damage. It's bad. Just 10% of Toy Story 2 remains. So they go to the backup tape. But the backup system failed months ago and no one noticed. Toy Story 2's gone, and there's no chance of finishing the movie in time for its scheduled release in 1999. All seems lost. But then, a team member who recently had a baby remembers she copied every file over to a workstation at her home so that she could work at home while caring for her newborn. She and Jacob race to her house and drive the workstation back to the office. The fate of a $100 million movie hangs on the data it holds. They boot it up and find several thousand files are still missing. But most of the movie's there. Toy Story 2 has survived. For now. But as the Toy Story 2 crew repairs the damage, high noon looms for DreamWorks and Pixar's bug movies. Jeffrey Katzenberg hoped ants would make Disney back away from attacking the Prince of Egypt. But it didn't. So he moves the Prince of Egypt from Thanksgiving to December 1998. But Disney immediately reschedules its movie Mighty Joe Young to open the same day. So Katzenberg goes nuclear. In June 1998, he brings forward Ants' release from spring 1999 to October 1998. Now, Ants will enter movie theaters before Pixar's A Bug's Life. The move enrages Steve Jobs. He can't stand the idea that Pixar now looks like the copycat. He starts bad-mouthing Ants in public. Disney pleads with him to stop talking about the rival movie, but he won't listen. He accuses DreamWorks of copying Pixar. DreamWorks' PR chief suggests Jobs takes a chill pill. On October 2, 1998, as the two rivals sling mud at each other, Ants opens in cinemas across America. Two friends. <laughs> One was a soldier. We're the lords of the earth. One was a worker. Handling dirt is not my idea of a rewarding career. You gotta switch places with me. Now they're trading jobs. <gasps> Nobody told me digging was so much fun. Switching lives. I am proud to send you into battle. I'm sorry, into battle? And getting into Whoa! the swing of things. Ants. PG. In its first weekend, Ant sells $17 million worth of movie tickets. It's the highest opening for an October weekend in U.S. cinema history and shows that Pixar isn't the only one capable of making computer-animated hits. But DreamWorks' rush to beat Pixar to the movies came at a cost. The accelerated release gave DreamWorks little time to maximize its marketing push. The Ant's toy line is incomplete when the movie opens, 
and many potential promotional partners passed on the opportunity due to the tight timescale. But Disney's got no such problems. A Bug's Life is backed with $50 million of marketing deals. There are Bug's Life-themed Nestle chocolates, McDonald's Happy Meals, Mattel toys, and Chevrolet-sponsored ball shows. And on November 25, 1998, A Bug's Life swarms into the nation's theaters. From the creators of Toy Story. Hey, bartender. Bloody Mary. Oh, positive. Comes an epic of miniature proportions. Who wanted the poo-poo platter? Hey, cutie! Stop! Being a ladybug automatically makes me a girl. From Disney and Pixar. Don't look at the light! I can't help it. A Bug's Life. Lady G. In its opening weekend, A Bug's Life makes $33 million, crushing ants and proving that Toy Story wasn't a fluke. A Bug's Life will go on to make more than $350 million worldwide, more than twice as much as ants. Pixar wins the Battle of the Bugs, but DreamWorks is now established as its foremost rival in computer animation. But for Katzenberg, ants isn't the main event. December 18, 1998, Los Angeles. At the Beverly Hills Hotel, DreamWorks is throwing a party to celebrate the launch of the Prince of Egypt. Jeffrey Katzenberg beams as he opens another bottle of champagne. It won't be long now until his distribution chief starts to call in the first reports of how the movie's doing at the box office. The Prince of Egypt is DreamWorks' flagship animation. It costs $70 million to make, and Katzenberg believes it'll be a watershed moment in animation. He also hopes it'll show everyone that DreamWorks can best Disney in hand-drawn animation. The party goes quiet as the phone rings. Katzenberg bounds over to answer it. Jim, you got the first figures? Everyone holds their breath as Katzenberg listens before replacing the receiver. Okay, so the takings are below expectations. But remember, that's the East Coast. Religion's not so hot there. Just wait until the Midwest data comes in. The party resumes, but as more results come in, the mood sours fast. The Prince of Egypt is falling far short of expectations. Katzenberg is crushed. Not only does DreamWorks look set to lose millions, but he won't get to lord it over Michael Eisner today. But DreamWorks isn't the only one facing bad news, because over at Pixar, Creative Chief John Lasseter's finally taken a proper look at Toy Story 2, and he doesn't like it at all. LinkedIn Jobs isn't just another job board. With a vast network of more than a billion professionals, it's the best place to hire. You'll get access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And if that sounds overwhelming, look, don't worry, it's not. LinkedIn Jobs makes the process easy and intuitive. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. If you're like me, hiring the best candidates for a job can often be about who you know, the connections you make. 
My favorite thing about LinkedIn Jobs is the ability to screen for the experience and qualities you're looking for and reach out directly, not waiting for the right person to come in over the transom, sifting through emails. It's actually fun to find people with the skills and backgrounds you need this way through LinkedIn Jobs. Often, you're making connections that help your business along the way. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash businesswars. You can thank me later. That's linkedin.com slash businesswars to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. June 1999. In the driveway of his home, a Pixar animator secures his infant in the car seat and hits the road. As he joins the interstate, he knocks back some more coffee to fend off the exhaustion. For six months, everyone at Pixar has worked 100-hour weeks The crunch began when creative chief John Lasseter decided Toy Story 2 wasn't good enough. But with the marketing deals for the movie already locked down, delaying the release wasn't an option. So instead of settling for second best, Pixar decided to rework the whole movie in just nine months. Now this animator's days bleed into each other. Life is a haze of blurred commutes and countless hours at the computer screen. The animator's heart sinks as the rail-crossing barriers block his path. Pixar's offices are just over the tracks, but this train will add another ten minutes to his commute, time that neither he nor Pixar can afford to spare. A few hours after reaching the office, the animator drops by his wife's desk. She also works at Pixar, but went in early to get ahead. Hey, how you doing? Oh, you know, tired. My hand really aches today. How did the drop-off at daycare go? The animator's face falls. He forgot about daycare. Their baby's still in the car, broiling in the summer heat. The parents and other employees race to the car, carrying bottles of cold water. They open the car door. The heat inside is intense. The baby's unresponsive, but breathing. They pour water over the infant and call for an ambulance. The infant's okay, but it was a close call. Pixar's people are cracking. They barely see their families. A third of them have repetitive stress injuries, and there's still three months of relentless work to go. Against the odds, Pixar meets the deadline. Toy Story 2 becomes Pixar's biggest movie yet. The team feels vindicated, but it very nearly broke them. President Ed Catmull decides Pixar can never again ask this of its people, even if they're willing to do it. So, he acts. Employees must now get management approval to work more than 50 hours a week. Scripts must be locked down more tightly before movies enter production to reduce the risk of extensive last-minute overhauls. And Pixar's next movie, Monsters Incorporated, is delayed until 2001. But DreamWorks fails to capitalize on Pixar's absence. In February 2000, DreamWorks releases another hand-drawn animated feature, The Road to El Dorado, and it bombs. With two disappointments in a row, Jeffrey Katzenberg slashes jobs at DreamWorks Animation Studio and ends the generous salaries he used to poach Disney talent. He also buys PDI, the company that produced Ants, 
to ensure DreamWorks remains competitive in computer animation. But he's not ready to abandon traditional animation. It's his first love, and he's sure it still has a future. But DreamWorks' next animated movie will challenge that belief. May 2001, Cannes Film Festival, France. In a darkened movie theater, Katzenberg wonders if his big gamble is about to backfire. Next week, DreamWorks releases its second computer animation, Shrek. And to build interest, he's entered it for the Palme d'Or, the most prestigious prize in movies after an Oscar. Now, he's having doubts. The con crowd are hard to please. Maybe they're not ready for Shrek's snarky attitude, toilet humor, and sly digs at Disney. But it's too late now. The lights go down and Shrek begins. A few seconds in, Shrek jumps into a bog and farts. Bubbles and a dead fish rise to the surface. No one laughs. Katzenberg sinks lower in his chair. Eight minutes in, he wants to crawl under his seat. None of the jokes are landing. But then, somewhere at the back of the theater, someone chuckles. Then, there's another laugh. The icy crowd is thawing. Soon, Shrek and his sidekick, Donkey, will have the whole theater laughing. When the movie ends, Shrek gets a standing ovation, and it's a sign of what's to come. Shrek becomes DreamWorks' biggest movie yet. It makes almost half a billion dollars at the box office. And as Shrek thrives, Disney suffers. Two weeks after Shrek's release, Disney releases its latest animated feature, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. But with audiences still flocking to see Shrek, it's met with a lukewarm reception. After six years of trying, Katzenberg's finally landed a punch on Disney. But Pixar's still ahead. In November 2001, Pixar's Monsters Incorporated debuts. By now, the Pixar brand is powerful enough to get people packing theaters. Monsters Incorporated outshines Shrek and earns more than $570 million at the box office. But Shrek still has a chance to even the score. March 2002, the Kodak Theater, Hollywood. It's the Oscars. In his seat near the front, Katzenberg's trying to keep his hopes in check. The Academy will soon announce the first ever winner of the Oscar for Best Animated Feature, and Katzenberg is desperate to win. He spent weeks and a small fortune urging Academy members to vote Shrek. But Pixar is just as eager to win. They've even hired a consultant to mastermind their campaign to get the Academy voting for Monsters Incorporated. Katzenberg looks across the theater to where Pixar's team are sitting and catches John Lasseter's eye. Lassiter looks away. Katzenberg senses that Lassiter's never going to forgive him for ants. Nathan Lane, the voice of Timon in The Lion King, walks on stage to present the Best Animated Feature Award. The nominees are Monsters Incorporated, Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, Shrek. As Lane picks up the envelope containing the winner's name, Katzenberg crosses his fingers. On the other side of the room, Lassiter edges forward in his seat. And the Oscar goes to Shrek. 
Katzenberg springs to his feet and hugs everyone next to him. He feels vindicated. DreamWorks is on its way, and it's giving Pixar a run for its money. But in the excitement, he's overlooked the most important lesson from the Oscars. All the movies nominated were computer animated. The era of hand-drawn animation is fading fast. And that spells trouble for Katzenberg's plan to win by keeping one foot in traditional animation and the other in computer cartoons. On the next episode, Disney guts its animation studio, Steve Jobs turns on Michael Eisner, and DreamWorks suffers a DVD disaster. From Wondery, this is episode two of DreamWorks versus Disney Pixar for Business Wars. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. If you'd like to read more about DreamWorks, we recommend The Men Who Would Be King by Nicole Laporte. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan of Yellow Ant Media wrote this story. Voice acting by Michelle Philippi. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Ryan Potesta. Our producer is Dave Schilling. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother Lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.